0: If they had ever written down their creed, it probably would have read, Christ and Him crucified. Their subset of Christian belief was simple enough. Jesus is son of God and friend of sinners, coming into the world as a human vessel of divine perfection. A willing martyr, whose most human experience was on the cross and at the tomb. Unconditional forgiveness and eternal bliss were His gifts to believers. The sincere believer was one who strove to love God and serve the kingdom through worship and service by way of good works. Most importantly, the Holy Spirit unites all believers. These were the Moravians. In an age of intolerance, they were remarkable in their embrace of all people. Yet their utopian project changed when it reached America's shores. A dream of a loving community defined by a holy and happy life began to evaporate step by step. With each passing generation, American Moravians were transformed by their American context, and their embrace of the other was replaced by walls of white supremacy. This is Logos-ish. Today, we explore the history of the Moravians of Winston-Salem and their experience in the Southern United States through a story told by two graveyards. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. We are here to talk about religion and just about anything related to it, which means this podcast is really just sort of a catch-all podcast that's talking about anything we feel like talking about each week. But we are excited with our show today. We have Dr. Leland Ferguson on the podcast here to talk about Moravia and Wachovia and some archaeological work he did in Winston-Salem. Uh, But first, how's everybody doing today? Brian, Garrett, Sarah, you guys doing good?
1: So I am in the midst of getting my house ready. So as of right now, I have two days left in my apartment and my house is not finished. So that's how I'm doing.
0: Yeah, you were saying you have sanded floors and you just a minute ago said your bathroom has to set. I'm not sure what is setting in your bathroom. Is it is it just settling slowly into the ground or is there something that's actually
1: drying? So they the church has put like this really fancy shower in and so everything is like mortared and tiled and things like that. I have, no, I have no like understanding of masonry, so that's as close as I can get.
2: I think that's all you really need, Brian. Uh, just don't step on it until they say it's okay. Uh, we're doing uh, fine here in Florida. It's a busy week. We have charge conference in the Methodist Church coming up for our church uh, soon, so we're in the midst of getting all the reports uh, signed and all last-minute meetings. So it's been a little bit of a sprint slash marathon, but we're doing good here,
0: charge conference is your big administrative meeting of the year, right, where you set everything up.
2: Yes, yeah, so not to use churchy language, but yeah, that's the meeting of all the leaders, and we uh, set boring things like the budget and just have a general outlook on things so yep, that's what we do uh,
1: and John and I went camping for the past couple of days, so we both still. Smell vaguely like campfire (laughs) and vaguely. (laughs) um, Yeah, we reek of bug spray and campfire (laughs) right now. It
0: was great to be off the grid, though.
1: We really wish we could have joined you. (laughs) Laurel
2: and I are jealous.
0: Well, someday we'll just all get together and and form a commune up in the woods and just, you know, organize our own society. Speaking of which, uh, we have Dr. Leland Ferguson on the podcast today. Leland, how are you doing? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and, and what led you to look at Moravians and all of that fun stuff as part of your research?
3: Sure, John. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, I, am, I am retired and have been retired for quite a long time now, uh, but my career was as an archaeologist. And uh, I suggested when we were talking before that you introduce me as your scoutmaster, uh, <laughs> which you didn't do. <laughs> and one reason was the outdoors was important to me from the time I was a kid. And uh, I, uh, I roamed the, the woods and the fields um, outside of Winston-Salem where I grew up and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I imagined myself as everything from an Indian to Daniel Boone to a pirate in the woods and all of those kinds of things. So I've, I've been outdoors, I've been in the woods, I I still live in a place where I can walk out the door and into the forest and into the fields. Just a couple of weeks ago, I found an 8,000 year old chipstone stone arrowhead in our underneath our manure pile in the backyard. And that's something I've been doing since I was about nine years old is finding those kinds of things. That led me to a a career eventually in archeology. span I had a sidetrack into engineering, but uh, finally, once in graduate school in engineering, I decided this is absolutely not what I want to do. And uh, I was at North Carolina State University, and I uh, I switched from engineering to to anthropology so that I could study archaeology. And specifically, at the time, I was interested in Native American prehistory. Uh, North Carolina at at Chapel Hill had a strong program in Native American prehistory. I went over and told my story to Joffrey Coe, and and he had some pity on me and identified with me and agreed to admit me, to help admit me to grad school at at Chapel Hill. So I worked on my uh, graduate degree at Chapel Hill. I uh, worked in Western North Carolina on sites that were the prehistory of the Cherokee. And eventually, after a time at, at Florida Atlantic University, came to the University of South Carolina, where I worked as a researcher and a teacher for more than 30 years. And so that's a little bit of my, uh, my educational background and my experience. I'll also say that Relative to the Moravians or the uh, Unity of the Brethren as they're, they officially call themselves, I grew up outside of Winston-Salem and Winston-Salem is a hyphenated town. It came together from two towns, uh, Salem, which was the original town and was founded by the Unity of Brethren as uh, an exclusive town for pious Christians of the Unity in a a approximately 100,000 acre tract of land that they had bought in the 1750s. That later became, they called Wachovia, by the way, and later became Forsyth County, North Carolina. And next to that town in the 19th century, uh, there developed a secular town called Winston. And so there was Salem and beside that was Winston. And then finally, after 130 or 40 years, uh, Winston and Salem came together as one town in 1913. So I grew up not far from that at all. And uh, when I was a child, I would go to the town of Old Salem. It was developing as a museum when I was young. And it actually had the only museum in the area that we as school children could go to. So we took two or three trips, particularly as middle schoolers, to Old Salem to see the museum and the boys' school and uh, to walk around the town that was just then beginning to develop as a um, as an outdoor living museum. And by the way, for listeners who don't know about Salem, if you look at it, today uh, the Outdoor Museum looks like a miniature Williamsburg. So houses are restored, uh, the streets are created so that they look like they're not paved, although they are paved. There are costumed interpreters uh, and that kind of thing, but it, it only includes a, a, maybe eight square blocks. of the, the, that includes the old town. I I grew up knowing about the Moravian church. We occasionally went to sunrise services. Sunrise services were a very big deal in Easter itself, a very big deal in the uh, Moravian church. And my family and I would go sometimes to the Easter sunrise services. Uh, also, uh, we had watch night services on New Year's Eve with Moravian youth groups. And I knew people who went to the Moravian church. I knew about Moravian music. As a result, I, I had this knowledge, general knowledge of, of Moravian life when I was a child. And also, uh, we went to uh, love feasts occasionally. Love feasts are a Moravian ritual that is sort of like communion, but it's much more relaxed. And people come to celebrate things. One of the most well-known is on Christmas Eve to celebrate important activities. And uh, they serve sweet buns and coffee, and they sing. And then there's a short homily and everyone's in good spirits and they shake hands and they hug one another. Uh, it, it's, it's a delightful experience. And so as a child, one of my first experiences with the Moravians involved going to a Christmas Eve love feast. So that gives you a little bit of background about my involvement with the Moravians. But when I left high school, when I left Winston-Salem in 1960, I pretty much went away from Moravians completely for many, many, many years and had no involvement and, and no thought about the Moravian church. Uh, I worked in Native American prehistory, uh, doing archaeology. I then, in the late 70s, began to be interested in African-American historical archaeology. And I did research in on African-American sites uh, and uh, I wrote a book that was much more popular than I anticipated called Uncommon Ground. That was about African-American archaeology, the archaeology of African-American sites on plantations. And then to make the segue from that to doing research at at Old Salem, uh, because I was doing African-American work in the late 80s, the board of directors at Old Salem decided that they should probably play catch-up and should do some research work on African Americans that lived and worked in Salem. And part of what they wanted to do was to restore a church that had laid derelict for about 40 years and recover the location of a church that had been built in the 19th century and raised in the early 20th century, and then also to find a graveyard that had been hidden, that had been covered up. Uh, i was in, I was invited up there to um, to consult, and I told them it was a good archaeological project, but i didn 't want to do it and uh, I went back home and finally they they called me and uh, had me come back up again and I convinced myself I should do the project so that gives you a little bit of background about me and um, about my involvement in archaeology and connection to the, the topic of God's Fields.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the book we're talking about today is is God's Fields. It's um, your most recent book, correct? Yes. And it, it's subtitled Landscape, Religion, and Race in Arabian Wachovia. And you actually open the book by talking about these these two graveyards in the town. The one you were looking for, uh, and it, spoiler alert turned out to be uh, essentially under a field that was kind of catty cornered to the church. And y'all found the headstones from the graveyard underneath the church as y'all were opening it up. That's right. But um, you know, also there's the sort of main graveyard in the town, the God's Acre which is a particular Moravian term. And we'll talk about the symbolism and the stratification of the graveyard in a little bit in terms of how it relates to the Moravians and their sort of religious worldview. But uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, just your experience of excavating those graveyards and also walking through and examining the people that were in sort of the main God's acre versus what y'all found underneath the church and around the church.
3: Sure. However, b- before that, let me give you a little bit of background about why I decided to to work on the graveyard. This goes back to personal history. In 1960, I uh, before the year the summer before I went to college, I worked uh, in construction for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company in Winston-Salem. They allowed me to do this because I was going to study engineering. And so I went in, but I, I did heavy work in construction. I was in uh, simple work in construction. I was on a steel crew and I was involved in tying in reinforcing steel in the floor and, floor and walls of what would become a parking lot and we were working down in a hole. It was very hot and uncomfortable. And I was on the steel crew. There was another crew, the carpentry crew that I had turned down because I was more impressed with the idea of being a steel worker. And when I got there, I discovered that there were actually three crews. There was the steel crew, the carpentry crew, and there was a labor crew. And the labor crew was all African-American the steel crew and the carpentry crew were all white. And as I worked there that summer, my eyes were completely opened uh, to the the injustice of racial inequality, of segregation and of racism. And it's best explained by a couple of things. In the morning and the afternoon, we had uh, two breaks, 15 minute breaks. And my lead guy would say let's go get a coke get a cup of coffee or a coke and we would climb up out of the hole walk down the sidewalk and go into a cafe and sit down and i would usually have a coke and a cherry pie and uh, we would talk and usually it ran over 15 minutes it would it would run to, to 20 30 minutes and then we would get up and we would go back out of the air conditioning and go back down to work. What I saw was the the labor crew, and and the time time was set for everybody. It was like 15 minutes. It was like 10 o'clock for everybody. As we left, the labor crew sat down where they were working, and they opened up whatever they had brought with them, and had their break right at their work site. When we returned, Often the labor crew would be back working and we would climb back down and start to work. And so as I would walk along and look down at these guys, many of them the age of my father, uh, down there as we were going to the restaurant, this the, the difference in this was just shocking. And I began to ask questions. I began to ask uh, about pay. Well, <clears throat> before I asked about pay, what I began to notice was from time to time, one of the older black men would show somebody on the carpentry crew how to do something. Or they would call him over to ask him about doing something. And I asked in all innocence, our lead guy, quietly asking that guy to, to show him how to do something. And then he told me, often these guys have two jobs, Some of them are contractors, some of them are uh, um, plumbers, some are masons, some are carpenters. Uh, They're skilled people, but they can make more money working at minimum wage for R.J. Reynolds and with the benefits they get from R.J. Reynolds than they can from doing their skills on the side. And so then I ask about the pay. I said minimum wage. They said, yes, all black people at RJ Reynolds are paid minimum wage. That was $1.50 an hour in 1960. And I was making $1.72 an hour. I was just out of high school getting ready to go to college. So I made $1.72 an hour, all these men made $1.50. The great significance to this is that this was on Church Street, just a few blocks up from Old Salem. And so we were in Winston, but it was only, I don't know, maybe 10 blocks away from there. And when I came back to Old Salem the second time, when they were talking about my excavating the site, I, I went down by myself after I had discussed this, but not made a commitment to do the work. After I discussed this and walked around the site, and as I was standing at the at the corner of the brick church building and looking at um, cracks in the foundation that I was pretty sure were a result of the church being built over some of the graves, in addition to the church being built over some of the graves. I thought back to my experience in 1960, straight up the street. I came to the conclusion that this is something I'm supposed to do. Uh, even though I had a research project on the coast of South Carolina, I was working on connections to West Africa. It was exciting. Uh, in, on the coast, the excavation is easy. At, in Old Salem, it was very difficult. It was, uh, uh, it was hard, rocky soil. And uh, but I, I decided that that's what I should do, and and I and I would say that for me that was the closest to a religious calling that I've ever had. So I called them back up and said that I would drop what I was doing on the coast and and uh, in West Africa, and that I would uh, come up and do the work at Old Salem. So that's my connection that 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 led me to do this. Then. The striking differences, getting back to your question, John, the striking differences were that the African-American church was on church street and Salem was built on a hillside. And there's a whole story about why this was built on a hillside. That's interesting, but it was built on a hillside. And the African-American church is down at the very bottom of this hill. And the Moravian church is much farther up the hill, but still on Church Street, on the same side of the street. And then farther up than the church is the Moravian graveyard. And by the way, Moravians don't use the term cemetery. They use either God's Acre or graveyard. And so uh, at the top of the hill is their graveyard. If you've never seen a Moravian graveyard, it's, it's quite unusual. Uh, if you, if you look at it, there's no, there are no standing stones. Uh, all the stones are about the size of the laptop that I'm working with here. And they have a simple amount of information on it. The person's name, uh, when they were born, when they died and uh, where they were from. And that was especially important early on because most everybody was an immigrant from someplace, And so they had where they had come from on it. And in, in walking around in the, in the graveyard, the, the graves were mounded. So uh, if you can imagine a cemetery where the grave has just been uh, interred, there's usually a mound of earth over the body. And uh, but that in most graveyards that isn't maintained. Over time, it sinks down and looks like it's level with the rest of the rest of the earth around. In the Moravian graveyard or God's acre, they kept the the, the graves mounded so that a grave looked like a pillow and a, and a bed. It looked like someone was sleeping. You could imagine someone was sleeping there, Uh, and on one of the arches going into the God's Acre, there is a quote, and I I can't recall exactly where this comes from, the New Testament, about blessed are they who are are asleep with the Lord. And so the the view is that, that they are literally asleep with the Lord, and at the millennia, they will rise up bodily from the graves.
0: Yeah, I think at several points in the book, you compared it to like seeds planted in a field, right? That was sort of the other operative metaphor.
3: Yes. That's why it is called God's Acre. The difference being that uh, in German, Acre means field. It doesn't mean the English acre. But in this country, they begin to refer to it as God's Acre and uh, apparently English speakers took that as God's Acre and the Moravians continued that and the term became God's Acre. As I wrote this book, everyone refers to it as God's Acre. But because of the seed metaphor, I thought that God's Fields was a better term, and especially since I was thinking about different graveyards in Wachovia, that is the great tract of land that they bought. I thought that God's fields was a, a more apt term and r- rather than God's acres, which might imply all contiguous things rather than separate fields. So at the bottom of the hill, there was no evidence of any graves in front of the church, although we had maps that showed that there had been a graveyard there. Uh, but it was clear that it had been filled in, and that the graves had been obliterated. So what we anticipated was that we were going to need to, to excavate and see if we could find the outlines of the graves. And we weren't, we weren't aiming to excavate bodies to bones. We just wanted to get down deeply enough in the soil so that we could clean it off and see the outline of the grave. And we began to work in the early 1990s. And we finished in the fall of 2000, uh, although the archeologist at Old Salem continued to do a little bit of work after that. And we found some extremely interesting things. As you mentioned, uh, we found gravestones that had been pulled up and had been hidden beneath the church. And they had been securely hidden Part of them were hidden beneath the central hallway of an... Well, let me explain just a bit about the church. The original church was built with its western end, its western gable end, at the eastern end of this graveyard. Okay, so the graveyard was out in front of the church, between the church and the street. Uh, In the 1890s, late 1880s, 1890, early early 1890s, uh, the church needed to expand, and so they decided that they would build out in front of the church rather than behind because it was more suitable to build in front, and the graves in front of the church had pretty much been lost because the church, the graveyard before it was used exclusively for African-Americans, that came in 1816. Uh, before it was exclusively African-Americans, it was a, what the Moravians called a stranger's graveyard, uh, a fremden got his And that is a graveyard for people who happened to die in and around Salem who were not Moravian or were not Christian at all. And so that's where strangers were buried. And this extension would go out over the old stranger's graveyard, but not over the, the African-American graveyard that was started in 1816. So in this addition, we found the gravestones hidden beneath the hallway floor, and it was sealed all the way around so that if you went into the crawl space, you couldn't get to it uh, from going in the crawl space because it was bricked up all the way around like like a vault uh, under the hall. And then uh, we, we later discovered that they had also hidden gravestones under the um, heavy granite stone steps of the front part of the church. So they had been pulled up and hidden there and they had been, they had been put under the hallway at a time when obviously the hallway had been damaged by termites. And, and so this was probably in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Well, we suspect it was done around 1913. And uh, it was clear to us that there had been damage that they had pulled up the floor and were repairing the floor. And that was the time when they hid the gravestones beneath the floor. So we excavated underneath that new addition to find strangers' graves. Uh, We excavated up to and um, around the foundation. uh, And then we excavated in the front yard. And we found some interesting things.
2: And that's um, really interesting on how race um, is so interwoven in your project. And coming from uh, me who values, how uh, we have treated the past and things that we want to cover up or tell differently. Uh, Your project is a very literal and physical uh, sense of that. Do you think that your project would help inform uh, folks or um, people who still practice the Moravian faith about uh, these practices in any sort of meaningful way? Or... Um, I guess my follow-up question would be, um, how did you feel when you first dis- started to discover these graves uh, underneath these um, parts of the church? I, it would just be interesting to hear your reaction to that when you first discovered those things.
3: I will say, we think that the, that the gravestones were hidden and that the graves were covered up around 1913. It's important that it's it's that time. That was the year Winston and Salem came together as one town. It was also in the height of the period of serious Jim Crow segregation and uh, discrimination and um, terrorism, lynching, and and so forth. When we when we began to uncover the graves underneath the church floor, what struck me was the indignity of it all. They hadn't just been carefully placed under the floor. Uh, they had been used to support some of the floor joists and there would be uh, some wooden boards down in the ground. Well, no, it was the reverse of this. So the, the gravestones would be placed down on the ground in a stack, and then there would be some wooden shims between that and the floor joists that were put in. And they, they used that to support the floor joists. And then uh, one of the, the stones was turned upside down and, and askew underneath the, on, the, on the ground. and. Two others had just been, obviously, they didn't need them in the end. They had just been dropped down through the floor joists and were leaning up against the floor joists. So there was nothing ceremonial. There, was, there appeared nothing reverent about the way the stones had been placed beneath the floor.
2: Wow.
3: And that was, that was a shock to me and a, and a great disappointment to me.
1: Yeah, um, today in in my state, that's a crime
3: <laughs> to <Yeah.
1: laughs> to deface a uh, a graveyard like that uh, would be a crime, no matter whether it's on private property or not.
0: So yeah. one of the one of the points you make in the book is that over time, especially the eventual defacing of the graveyard and the hiding of the stones, uh, that marks an attenuation of the Moravian culture, moving from a culture of both, you know, focused on pietism and holiness and creating this sort of almost utopian beloved community to a culture that has um, accepted and and shifted outwards in terms of uh, embracing American values and enculturating and also uh, acquiring a particular kind of um, Southern American racism. From the, that time period, so you know that this development of culture as it moves along is is really fascinating to me, especially when you you look at the Moravian history. So, can we can we talk a little bit about exactly who the Moravians were, what they believed, and why they wound up with this thousand acre tract of land in the middle of North Carolina, or what is now North Carolina Forsyth County?
3: Actually, the nineteen thirteen event was one of the last in a long transition uh, of Moravians away from some of the basic tenets of their faith uh, and in the in the middle 18th century they were very Christocentric they were uh, focused on saving souls they created one of the one of the first extensive missionary systems, especially a missionary system that was not related and supported by any government. Uh, they, they did it on their own. And they also imagined taking the, the word of Jesus, the word of the Savior, to everyone on earth. And color and ethnicity didn't mean a whole lot to them two of the early Moravian missionaries volunteered to become slaves in order to do mission work amongst those who were enslaved in the West Indies. Uh, it turned out that they did not become slaves, but but they lived very close to the people who were enslaved and they brought them into the church. White European Moravians uh, in some cases married African-American uh, enslaved, People and African American people who who converted to the church. So, in in that early time, uh, they were rather open to anyone. the The idea was, if you are pious, if you are a believer, uh, if you work at piety, if you work at confession, if you work at prayer, if this can be confirmed, then we accept you. Uh, we're open to you, uh, and. This was an attitude that was brought to North America uh, in their interactions first with Native Americans in Pennsylvania. And then when they came south to build Salem, Salem was to be their great city in America. And it was like Bethlehem and Nazareth in Pennsylvania to be an exclusive, pious town. And that's what they set up. Early on, what they discovered was they couldn't build this great town by themselves. They were primarily um, craftsmen, artisans and not builders, although they they did do building, they did do joinery and things like that. But the, the heavy work of either farming or construction was sort of outside of their realm. And so they began to hire people to help But there were very few free white people that were willing to come and help and help on a steady basis. But they found that they could rent slaves uh, from surrounding plantations uh, to help them do their work. And they justified it by saying, well, we will share the word of God with the slaves. We will tell them about the Savior, Jesus Christ, and so forth. Uh, and in this early time, the people who did come to work with them considered them to be better uh, than the people that they were enslaved to. And so the first person that, that uh, came to live with them was a man who asked that um, they buy him. And so they, they justified buying him by, well, we're taking him out of this situation uh, of enslavement, uh, of non-Christian enslavement, and bringing him into our community, and we will begin to teach him Christianity and the love of Christ, and so forth. So that's the way they began, but interestingly, nowhere they went did they challenge the the political and social structure of the location where they went. and so, if, if they came to the West Indies and they had slavery, then then they didn't buck the idea of slavery. They didn't in, engage in political discussion about those things. Their whole approach was, uh, we are of the spirit, and we are to save souls, um, and we're not to be politically active uh, here on earth. That isn't our goal. And they have a
0: history of sort of uh, difficulty with whatever political activity they had taken, right? John Huss.
3: Oh, yes. Had um, been burned in the stake.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, he He had been, they had run into some trouble in Europe because they were in the in Germany where there was lots of trading around about state faiths and, and whichever dukedom you were in or whichever princedom you were in, you, you know, had to Essentially, abide by the rules of the, the reigning noble at the time. And so they did eventually find patronage in a, in a Count Zinsendorf.
3: Yes. That's who
0: right. was all on board with the project, but their early experience is not so great with political action.
1: No, no, they weren't. Yeah, John, being burned at the stake sounds like a real political loss. Uh, so that's the understatement of a lifetime.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so over time, slavery became more and more familiar in the late 18th century uh, uh, and having servants in town. And they were careful in the beginning. They said the, the, the folks will only come in to do nurse work and we don't want our youth to grow up and be lazy and think they have servants to do work for them all the time. And, and so it, it was a very slow beginning, but over time, since they were within this milieu of the plantation South, uh, they began to try to fit in, and trying to fit in meant having to uh, compromise some of these things and uh, and accept the behavior of people who were not as pious in their view as, uh, or people who were non-Christian, or people, or white people who were not as pious as they were and to accommodate them in some ways. One of the first ways this began to happen was uh, they had a school for boys and a school for girls and plantation owners began to come to them and request that they bring their girls into their schools uh, to take them away from the plantation and to give them an education. And so the Moravians saw this as a way to have some income, to have these young women little girls, sometimes, come into to their community. Uh, they had a school on Church Street. And by the way, the whole town is laid out. So Church Street is all a very sacred uh, uh, region of the town, where outsiders are not allowed to come, except on special occasions. And so the girls' school was there. That turned into Salem Academy and, and to now what is Salem College. Uh, in Salem. They were originally burying um, black Moravians in their God's Acre. So there had been Moravians that had been converted. They were part of the exclusive community. They were pious members of the unity of brethren. When they died, they were buried in the Moravian God's Acre at the top of the hill. But then they began to be concerned because the parents of one of the girls in the girls school almost died when they were in town. And this posed a problem. Should one of their parents die while they are in town, are we to bury them in the stranger's God's Acre that has non-Christians as well as black people buried in it? Uh, And they decide, no, they should probably bury them in their God's Acre. So they made the decision that we will bury some non-Moravian Christians in our God's Acre, Uh, non-Moravian white Christians in our God's Acre. And at the same time, they decided what we're going to do is expand the graveyard, the old stranger's graveyard at the bottom of the hill and let all African-Americans who die in and around Salem be buried there. So that meant that Moravians would be buried in the graveyard at the bottom of the hill. Some non Moravians would be buried in the graveyard at the top of the hill and the division was based on race. And that happened in 1816, I believe. So that's the beginning of this is as they're beginning to accommodate themselves to the to the social world around them. Uh, they're beginning to be, think more and more racialized, in racialized terms than they had in the middle 18th century. And so it is the beginning of systemic, of the evolution of systemic racism in Salem. And by the way, after, writing the book, I, I looked back on it eventually, and I had three things that I thought, oh gosh, I should have done those three things. <laughs> and one of them was, I should have had an author's author's preface about my experience working in construction for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company uh, up the hill. And I should have explained that this is the reason, the primary reason uh, I began to do the the archaeological work there. Then I think that I should have had a chapter exploring systemic racism and then tied back to that chapter as I went through the subsequent chapters of the book. And one of my reviewers said that I needed to say more about systemic racism and so I ended up putting more in a footnote about systemic racism. And I look back on it now and I should have had a whole chapter on systemic racism.
0: Can you briefly, because uh, sometimes terms are a little flexible or malleable, can you briefly explain what you mean by systemic racism in this context?
3: Sure. By systemic racism, I'm thinking differently than the kind of, of crude, bigoted racism that we think of every day, of of people who are just totally, totally negative, totally uh, opposed to race who think themselves superior to other people of color uh, and, and so forth. Whereas systemic racism is a kind of racism that cause of the racialization of the society gets built into the structure of the society and it's often difficult to see and difficult to to understand and so it is a an element of bringing racialization and racial differences with one group being superior to the other into this fabric of the society.
0: Kind of like having a graveyard that has been disappeared at the bottom of the hill and then another graveyard at the top of the hill and dividing people between them by
3: yes yes Yes. and also I'll give you another example in 1823 so they they divided not only the church not only the graveyard but they began dividing the church into black and white and the um, Uh, Male missionaries were very much interested in doing mission work with the the Creek and Cherokee Indians. And so they established a mission uh, in what they termed the Southwest then, um, amongst the Cherokee and the Creeks. And the Female Mission Society in town began as as their mission work to work with the the local African-Americans. And eventually, this becomes a a separate Sunday school and a separate activity to which all African-Americans are relegated. Uh, And finally, in 1823, there's the argument that they should should build a church for African-Americans, specifically for African-Americans. And the decision is made to build it even lower down the hill. I'm not talking about the brick church now. This is a log church that was built before that. They decided to build it even lower down the hill than, than the graveyard and the brick church. So it's at the very bottom of church street. And so when, when I was new to all of this, I asked in all innocence, the, the archivist at Old Salem, why did they build the African-American church down at the bottom of the hill? And the response I got was, well, Salem was developing by then, and by that time there was no other place for it than at the bottom of the hill. Well, he didn't see the implications of what he was saying. Moravians controlled this entire town they could have built this church anywhere they wanted to build it. They could, and, and there was space available. They could have built it in the middle of their town square. They could have taken down, they, they took down buildings. It wasn't unusual at all. They could have, they could have made the, the African-American mission a central feature of their town, um, but they didn't do it. And they, they didn't conceive that they could do it. And the archivists didn't conceive that they could have done it either.
0: Yeah, I think that you actually mentioned that there were several open sites that if you go back and look at the maps and kind of parse out when it was happening, that they actually did have open space that sure. was allocated to other things or designated for other things, but could have very easily been flipped to something
3: yeah, else. That's right, yes. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no question about it. So, so at, at the time, I think everyone thought they were doing a good thing for African-Americans I think that in looking back at it, the archivists thought, well, this, this is, they had to do it this way, uh, yet they ended up being at the, at the bottom of the sacred section of town and whites ended up being totally at the top. And so you get this great symbol of landscape that uh, uh, black American, black Christians are at the bottom, and white Christians are at the top. Uh, and that, uh, that fit with the, the notion of Pietism. The Pietism thinks in terms of relative ranks of Christians. In contrast, say, to the Baptists who believe once you're saved, that's it. You're in the group and you are like everybody else. You're in the group. Amongst the Pietists, you had to prove yourself. Uh, you, had to, you, you had to work, you had to get approval um, from your, your peers uh, and from ministers that, that you belonged. And, and in the case of Salem, uh, people had to prove they belonged in Salem. Otherwise, they had to live out in the country. And so uh, people that would come to Wachovia and want to become members of the Moravian Church first would have to go into a trial community outside of town. And they would have to to work and work at their piety before they could come into the town and be a member of the town.
0: And it was all communal property, right? Everybody kind of lived and worked under the purview of the church and, and even leased their living spaces from that centrally owned church property.
3: That's right. And that's the way it was intended to be from the beginning. However, another accommodation that they made was... Over time, uh, as non-Christian or non-Moravians moved in, uh, they began, in order to make money, they began selling off parcels of Wachovia to people who were not Moravians. And so the town remained Moravian as part of the church, I think until 1856 uh, was when the, the corporate town was broken up and people could buy their own property. Um, but before that, yes, it was all communal. And I, I'll mention now, just put in that the third thing I think I would have done with the book is that I wouldn't have made the subtitle what it is. I think I would have written Landscape, Religion, and Race in a Southern Town rather than in, Morav- in, in Moravian Wachovia. I've I've always, thought that it's better to be specific than to be general but in some cases it's better to be general than it is to be specific and I think in in this case uh, if I had given a more general title to the book and actually one one friend who had done historical research on Moravians advised me not to put Moravian in the title he said if you put the Moravian in the title it will kill the book (laughs) <laughs> and, and but I could I couldn't do that. I thought, well, it is Moravian Wacovia, and also because I grew up there, I knew the people. I was writing in in large part. I was writing to to Winston Salem Moravians. Felt like Moravian and Wacovia ought to be in the in the title. But I think had it said in a southern town, it would have had a larger audience. But what, what I was saying about this development, eventually, members of the church came from Germany who were veiled Christians, who really were coming to America to engage in the kind of capitalistic opportunities that were available in America. And the Moravian church was their way to do that. And Wilhelm Fries was one of the worst of these. From my studies, I think the Moravian church allowed him a way to come to Germany, and he saw an opportunity to make money, and making money involved promoting slavery and promoting the buying and selling of people, uh, promoting the sale of alcohol. The Moravians were popular beer drinkers, but but they weren't heavy spirit drinkers, and Fries came and... Uh, He started selling spirits to everyone. The church had to call him down again and again and again. And then once the church became became involved in industrialism, his son took over and became a a principal capitalist and pressured toward moving the communal group there toward involvement in in capitalism and industrialization. And so it all changed a lot. And I, I often say that in the, In the middle of the 18th century, the Moravians were communalistic, they were not racist, they were, and I have have one other thing I was going to say, what was it? I used to say this all the time, Uh, but nevertheless, by the time of the Civil War, they were industrial capitalists and uh, they served on the side of the Confederacy. And so they they were slaveholders uh, a lot of them went into the confederate army as musicians and as nurses rather than as soldiers but nevertheless they they went into the to the confederate army
1: and and leland this is this conversation's been a really helpful reminder that the church and religious movements are highly impacted by the cultures in which they're immersed mm-hmm. as well as that the church then becomes a permission giving structure for those social ills. Um, and I, and I want to caution, I I know that all of the podcast hosts on this podcast are pastors, but just to anybody who's out there like uh, listening, just know that the community that you're a part of can give permission to some really harmful things. So it's really, uh, we have to be really cautious about what we embrace culturally. Indeed. As, as a religious tradition.
3: Yes.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I really loved at the very beginning of the book was this sort of core question that you offer up to your readers, um, where you ask how did people as good as the Moravians make peace with slavery and racist segregation? And how do any of us become involved with practices at odds with our values? I thought that was a really powerful, but haunting question to meditate on really at any given time, but, you know, it seems especially relevant right
3: now. I don't know that I can say much more than I, than I wrote there in those that, in that sentences. <laughs> and it is a big question. It's one that I think about often in my, in my own experience uh, in, involved with institutions and life in general. Uh, I think that it, it, it's an, an important question for everyone.
0: Yeah, so why don't we end on a fun question?
3: Okay.
0: <laughs> Sam, your son, who is is you know we're, we've been close friends since childhood, um, and while you were being our scoutmaster. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think his probably favorite story about Salem has to do with the process of its founding, uh, in particular how it came, how they came to settle on founding the town at their like fourth or fifth possible location rather than one of their primary early on favored choices. And originally the town was, you know, planned sort of like, like Zinzendorf who was the the count patron of the Moravians originally had the town, you know, envisioned as sort of like a series of concentric circles sort of centered on this church area. And, and, you know, everything was laid out very, very carefully. Uh, And then of course, once that moved over to America, people began planning more around the geography, which is how you got the town on the hill, the shining city on the hill kind of thing. Yes. How did they wind up in Salem,
1: though?
3: (laughs) Well, yes, that that is a good and rather humorous looking back at it from this point in in history. Zensendorf laid out a plan as if you were laying uh, laying out a town on a plane, on a big, relatively flat area, and when they bought uh, Wachovia in Western North Carolina, they had to report back, we bought a nice piece of land, but it's very hilly, and so the uh, word came down from Parenthood in Germany that, okay, well here are a number of things that you should look for. These are a place that is near water, a place that is rather centrally located to the, to the Wachovia tract, and a place that uh, has plenty of resources available for building the town. And there may have been some others, but they, they, those were primary things. And so they were instructed to select a number of different places and then make a decision about which one would be acceptable for the town. So Gottlieb Reuter, uh, who was the, or Christian Reuter, who was the surveyor, laid out all of these different places. And some were, were more desirable than others, but he selected the number that uh, that was requested. And as they began to uh, to discuss this, they decided that the chief elder should make the final decision because they were having difficulty. And the, the way they arranged for the chief elder to make the decision was, well, I should say that they had decided earlier on that Jesus would be the chief elder of their group, that Jesus would have the final say in everything. uh, And that they would, if, if they could not decide amongst themselves, if they had consensus, then they assumed that that was what Jesus wanted them to do. But if they did not have consensus, then, they would need to ask Jesus to make the decision. And they did this by drawing lots. And so the the lots was, they would take a bowl and take little pieces of reed and put yes, no, or wait on pieces of paper, fold them up and put them in the reed. And then someone would draw out the reed and that would be Jesus decision. And so they went through one by one, The different places that uh, for the town, and they all either said no or they said wait until finally they got to the least desirable spot of their selections and they drew from the lot and it said yes. So Salem was built on this hillside. The one advantage to it was that they could have running water throughout the town so that they had a reservoir up above and they had water that came down in, into the town. Uh, and then Winston, actually, when the secular town was built, it was, it was finally built on the more favorable location in that particular area. So Winston, ironically, Winston, the secular town is at the very apex of the hill And Salem is downhill from Winston.
1: So, just responding to that, I'm really glad that that is not how my church makes decisions. Might make things more interesting.
0: It might make some things much easier.
1: (laughs) Honestly. Uh, Leland, I have uh, one final uh, thing to bring it up into the now. So, the Moravians still host an Easter sunrise service. Uh, every year. It's the oldest one in America, reportedly, and it's, it's been going on for like 200 and almost 250 years. Yes, that's it's right. Very unique experience from what I've heard from people who've been there. Have you ever visited, and, and what makes that unique? Experience?
3: Oh, yes. I've, I've been several times. This can all be understood in, in, in the terms of piety and exclusivity. Moravians kept non-Moravians out of the town, yet they wanted to show off to non-Moravians their piety. So you've got, we don't want Moravian, we don't want non-Moravians here, but we want them to know how pious we are. We want to, we want to set an example for them. So we want them to see us. And so they began opening up the Easter sunrise service to uh, non-Moravians so that they could come and see how the Moravians dealt with Easter. And so if you go to the Easter sunrise service, you wait from, I, I, we would go at like three in the morning. And, and when I was a kid, there used to be a great crowd that would come and uh, assemble in the town square, uh, waiting for the sunrise. And then you would begin to hear horn bands coming from different parts of the town coming toward the central town. And then when the sunrise service was to begin, the minister would come out and as well as all the elders and stand on a, a platform above everyone else and uh, and begin the service. And the service would, would involve walking from the church up to the God's Acre. And all the Moravian church officers go first and then other Moravians and then the, those of us who are non-Moravians go last. And so we walk up the hill to the church with the bands on either side of the street and then hold a sunrise service there at the, at the church uh, or at, in the graveyard. And so you begin to see uh, I'm an outsider and I'm looking in on the most pious as they do this ritual. Then eventually the Moravians open up a museum and allow people to come to the museum. People can come in to Main Street, which is a block over from Church Street, and they can look toward Church Street and see Church Street out there. And then they begin to open some love feasts to non-Moravians and also watch night services. The watch night services like I went to when I was in Methodist youth. The Moravian churches would invite us to come to their watch night service. I don't remember our ever inviting them to come to a watch night service. And so Salem itself as a museum comes from a long tradition of the Moravians exhibiting themselves to non-Moravians and with the intention originally of exhibiting piety to non-Moravians.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, every week we end with the question, you know, what's giving you life right now? What's bringing you joy? Um, you know, what's getting you through the day if you're not feeling particularly optimistic or, you know, (laughs) if you generally are, you know, just, just what is, you know, inspiring or interesting or fun for you right now?
3: That's easy for me to answer. It's going out and doing the same things I did as a child. It's walking in the woods and walking in the fields. I've started taking a lot of photographs. Uh, I've gotten some new cameras that I'm excited about. My cameras with machine learning are in, unbelievable to me. I do bird watching. I meditate and I pray when I'm on these trips, when I'm on these walks, and often I will do two or three a day. And that's what has helped me for years, and what's helping me especially these days of isolation and COVID nineteen. I can't imagine the being without it, and um, it is very important to me. and And by the way, I will say um, I have a web page, That please, if you like, come take a look. I, I have some things about the Moravians. I have some things about race, I have things about the outdoors, I have humorous stories, I have have photographs uh, on there. And also I'm quite open to friends on Facebook. And so if it looks like you're a legitimate, serious person, I'm happy to be your friend. And I share a whole lot of of stuff, especially the, the stuff that I do outdoors.
0: Awesome, well thank you so much. Brian, what about you? What are you enjoying this week?
1: So um, my congregation is in the midst of a renovation, I mentioned that last week, and um, we started demolition uh, this week. And um, yesterday, and the day before that, I spent most of my day uh, swinging a sledgehammer. Um, I had so much fun doing that then, uh, and that brought so much life and maybe a little relief uh, to my day. Um, and now I'm just incredibly sore <laughs> um, um, from probably overdoing it a bit. So, you know, all things in moderation. Well, we're talking about North Carolina. So uh, as we mentioned, we went camping in North Carolina this weekend and got to do a short little hike, um, more like a walk with stairs to Elk River Falls. And it was so beautiful and just life-giving and I felt like I was able to take real deep breaths for the first time in a while. What do you think, John? Yeah. Did I, I steal to. yours? <laughs>
0: no, I, I do want to piggyback on top of that and mention that uh, Leland, a couple of years ago, one of the things you mentioned to me uh, is that when you were our scoutmaster, that was the first time you felt like you'd actually learned some of the things that you had purportedly learned when you were a scout. And uh, in particular, knots was the thing you mentioned. Uh, and I just want to say that, that one of my meditative practices and one of the things that I tend to get designated for doing when we go camp is now fire building. Uh-huh. Uh, I was truly terrible at fire building <laughs> when you were trying to teach me. I had no patience and... Somehow, I feel like I always ran out of some kind of wood in the intermediary steps. And so I never got up to the big pieces of wood. I would always run out of the sort of between tinder and kindling sized pieces of wood. And then the fire would just sort of collapse and then eventually go out. Uh, So I can tell you today that I can now build a fire properly. (laughs) I can vouch for that. And it produces heat and warmth, uh, but it's also a very peaceful and meditative exercise for you made it kind of slowly build it up from those small pieces to those large pieces and then slowly tend it over the course of the evening.
1: The podcast listeners probably need to learn more about what we do when we go camping.
0: We can do a camping episode. We did actually talk about just using a phone and recording a conversation while we were up there, but... Yeah. Uh, good times. Good times. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys, for listening. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you, Leland. Uh, the book that we were talking about is God's Fields, Landscape, Religion, and Race, and Moravian Wachovia, parentheses, in a southern town. Okay. It is an excellent book. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. Uh, Amazon was recommended, but you can get the University of Press Florida store Uh, or really just about anywhere else. So thank you guys so much, and have a wonderful week.
3: Thank you, John, Brian, Sarah. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to LogosishPod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at LogosishPod, and please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the stuff we are working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.